0: Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Daniel chapter 4, so turn there. It's a long chapter. I'm going to read it. For you, and then we'll look at several points. Think our way through this chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that had made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I did tell them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and thus said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth and bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, and to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men." This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches and the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who has grown and become strong, and your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that you may perhaps be lengthening of your prosperity." All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of twelve months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, "'What have you done?'' At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his words are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble this chapter is can be compared to an open letter that Nebuchadnezzar gives to his kingdom it's his confession it's his testimony it's his narrative you notice, we read through it, he has I, Nebuchadnezzar, several times, and then he jumps to third person, he, when he's in this state of insanity. It's interesting. So it's, it's all first person up until he's lost his mind, and now he has to talk as one looking back and just speaks of him as he. He can't say I because he wasn't thinking clearly back then. He thought he was an animal. So we come in this fourth chapter to Nebuchadnezzar's final mention in the book of Daniel. We're not going to read about him, yet he's probably the greatest king of Mesopotamia. No, no king, I read, reigned as long as Nebuchadnezzar, 43 years, from 605 to, two, five, 605 to 562, a 43-year reign. It's very long, as I mentioned before. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned over 90 times in the Old Testament, more than any other foreign king or adversary of Israel. So this is his second dream. Again, it's a disturbing dream. It alarms him, and it's his third encounter with the God of Israel, the God of heaven. It's another encounter with him, a miraculous one. When did it happen? Well, because he is on his rooftop and he's overlooking his great city that he rebuilt and turned into a great fortress, actually. the streets, the buildings, the roads, the river that ran through it, all the things, the walls around it and the famous uh, tower there. He's looking at all his great works of the city, so it's probably near the end of his life when this happens to him. We don't know exactly when, but perhaps near the end. So, Let's look at this here. Verses 1 to 3, Nebuchadnezzar introduces his story here. So you see he's calling the attention of all the peoples, nations of his kingdom that dwell on the face of the earth. Notice what he says here, which is interesting. He says, peace be multiplied to you. He's never used that expression before. And to me, this makes an argument for his progression in uh, his understanding of God, perhaps where he is spiritually. Because at the beginning of this chapter, he's now reflecting on it, having gone through this experience. So he's, he's praising God at the beginning, in these first few verses, how great is his signs, the signs of the Most High... And his wonders, and again, he announces how great his kingdom is. It's an everlasting kingdom. So, this is this seems to be uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, a changed man. Peace be multiplied. There's one New Testament writer that uses that same language. Happens to be the Apostle Peter in both of his letters, First Peter one two and Second Peter one two. Peace be multiplied. So he's going to reflect on God's signs and wonders. We've seen that expression before in the Bible. It's found in the book of Acts. We've seen it before in the book of Daniel now. Signs and wonders. What is the meaning of that? Well, signs is referring to God's miraculous works. But they're called signs because they point to something. They, they have meaning. There's actually a reason for the sign. Same as John in the Gospel of John speaks of Jesus' miracles as signs. It's the same idea. It's a signpost. When a miracle occurs in the Bible, it's not just because God wants to show off how powerful he is, uh, so we'll just stand in amazement. No, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for the miracle. It has significance and meaning. So the miracles of, of the Bible, and Nebuchadnezzar has rightly called it a sign and a wonder, and wonder speaks of the effect of the sign. What it causes? It causes people to marvel, to stand in awe and wonder at such power as is on display in this event. So again, the God is called the Most High by Nebuchadnezzar six times in this chapter. I think I mentioned that in the sermon last week where it occurs for the first time. Nebuchadnezzar calls the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the Most High. And that's significant because he's a polytheist. He believes in many deities, and Nebuchadnezzar has his own god, which happens to be Bel. That's why Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. He was named after Nebuchadnezzar's deity, which some say is actually the god Marduk, the Babylonian deity who was the lord of the gods, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon of deities. But he calls Yahweh the Most High. What does that mean? Well, simply, he's the Supreme God. So he's moving in his understanding of who God is. He's the highest God among the gods. How great is this God, especially his signs and wonders. But the fact of the matter is, Yahweh is great in everything, not simply signs and wonders. He's great in all of his attributes, in his being. Everything about God is great. That's why the writers of the Bible will make a comparison between the greatness of God against the other gods that men worship. For example, Psalm 77, verse 13. What God is great like our God? There's none like him. He's great in everything. And it's such a great privilege and a glory for us as his people to, be, to declare to others the greatness of God, to put him on a pedestal, and to lift him up. So Nebuchadnezzar introduces his story here in verses 1 to 3. Now in the next section, a large section, verses 4 to 18, Nebuchadnezzar actually recounts his dreams. So we're not in the same position as chapter 2, When he kind of forgot what it was, he knew it was something, he was bothered by it, and he has to have the people tell him what his dream was, because he doesn't quite remember it. Here he knows what the dream is, and he recounts it in detail. Notice what he says, that he was at ease, verse 4, when he had this dream which means he was really at peace, he was at leisure, he was really enjoying life, and then this dream came and upset everything again in his life. So, it, it starts out like that. It made him afraid, and he summons his wise men. Again, some of them are listed, not the entire list. I think there's like six different classes when they're all together. Here, four of them are mentioned these are all the various classes of wise men of Egypt who had specialties in occultic practices, in uh, the future, in divination, in deriving secret knowledge from sources. I mean, these, the, he covered all the bases with these different men. And again, they were at a loss, they didn't know what this dream meant. At last, he calls Daniel. How could he forget Daniel? What Daniel had done earlier, maybe many years before in chapter 2. The man who actually told him what his dream was. So he calls Daniel. And I like what it says here about Daniel. How special he was. The different things that Nebuchadnezzar focuses on. First of all, Daniel so special they gave him... Uh, This new name, which actually had the name of Belshazzar's God in it. That's the first thing. And then notice that... Now, remember, this is Belshazzar's understanding of Daniel. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? This is how Nebuchadnezzar looked at Daniel. Now, some of your Bible versions, this actually could be translated accurately from the Aramaic. In whom is the spirit of the Holy God, singular. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't quite have that understanding. He's he's in interpreting it as a polytheist. The spirit of the Holy Gods is in Daniel. But what was he recognizing? That Daniel had the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Plain and simple. Simple. This was also said by Pharaoh of Egypt about Joseph when he interpreted his dreams. The same kind of language. So this is how they looked at God's servants who had evidently some supernatural element about them that they couldn't quite explain except in terms of their heathen theology. So this is how he viewed it. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? By the way, that's repeated three times. Verse 9 has it again, and then we come to it at the end of verse 18. So it's definitely emphasized that Daniel had the Holy Spirit. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, it was the spirit of the holy gods. Then he mentions his reputation for revealing mysteries, that no mystery was too difficult for Daniel, and that's why he was elevated to being the chief of the wise men. So Daniel had this very high position among Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. He's the chief one here. Now in verses 10 to 16, we have the content of the dream, you know, it actually starts out very positive. It's a very pleasant picture. Here's this tree. Uh, It it grows very high. It reaches to the heavens. It's, uh, It's got beautiful leaves. It provides food. Uh, The animals are there, there's an abundance of comfort, protection, it's visible from wherever you are on the face of the earth. It's in the center of the earth, by the way. It's in the midst of the earth, this tree. So Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was kind of like the center of things, is what he's saying. And Nebuchadnezzar is even himself at the center of it, because the tree is, is him, him and his kingdom. So it starts out very, very good. It's a very positive picture about his kingdom, about his particular reign. And it had a a positive effect on the rest of the world. What a tree! What a great tree this is! But then this watcher, did you catch that? We have the watcher mentioned three times. Who is the Watcher? As I saw in the visions of my head, I lay in bed, and behold, a Watcher, a Holy One, came down from heaven. Now again, this is Nebuchadnezzar's term. He's explaining this phenomena of some supernatural heavenly being that came and had a part in this drama of this tree. Who is the watcher? Well, I I believe it's simply it's referring to angels. First of all, we know in the among God's creatures, his supernatural creatures, that it's the angels. The, they're the primary ones that are on these missions between heaven and earth as messengers for Yahweh. And so this is this is who Nebuchadnezzar is. Referring to, he's referring to an angel by calling it a a watcher. These watchers, I read, are actually in Jewish literature, in the books of Enoch and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is interesting. Apparently, this term is found there. So the watcher says to cut the tree down. So now the dream that started out very positive takes a turn for the worse. Now it becomes something dark, disturbing, alarming for Nebuchadnezzar. Now another thing I want to point out is how long this tree is to be cut down for. Seven periods, until seven periods of time pass over him. Did you note that as we read through that? That's another thing that's three times here. I circled it, I I made a mark in my Bible from one to the other so I could just follow it through the text. But it's three times said until seven times passes over him. Some of the translations will actually interpret it as seven years. There's some that believe that this event in the life of Nebuchadnezzar lasted seven years. I don't personally have that view. I think it's indefinite. I don't think it is specific. It doesn't say years here. That would have been a long time for him to have been out of his kingdom. I mean, maybe it was. It's not important. The fact is that it's it's going to last for as long as it takes for him to learn the lesson. And what's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar is to learn? This humbling experience is to happen as long as he still thinks he's the big shot in the earth, the, the supreme monarch, and is full of pride. No. That pride has to be brought down and he has to recognize there's another one above him that's superior, greater, and supreme the supreme sovereign of all the earth. In other words, the God of Israel, the God of heaven, the Most High. Once he learns that lesson, then he's going to come out of this. But it's going to take seven periods of time, whatever that is, seven months, seven weeks, seven days, seven years, I think it's indefinite. Seven is a perfect number we know in the Bible, so I think it's just speaking of that in a sense. So we don't really know how long this duration is. It's not, it's not clear. That's, that's my view. Actually, it's four times, not three times. That's seven periods of time is mentioned four times, so it's really emphasized Now, one other thing I want you to note in this section is verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. Did you catch that? Again, this is Nebuchadnezzar's perception. And actually, this is the theology of the ancient Near East, who believe that divine decisions were made in some sort of a heavenly council of gods. And it was this council of gods, the heavenly beings, that made this decree. Daniel's going to correct it. In verse 24, he says, this decree is by the Most High. So just contrast those. So Nebuchadnezzar says by the decree of the watchers. Oh no. No, the angels didn't decree this. This was decreed by the Most High. So as you read through this, don't be confused by Nebuchadnezzar's odd and strange designation and understanding of things. This is coming from a polytheistic background but he's describing the best he can what happened to him. Now, in verses 19 to 27, Daniel interprets the dream. Notice it says Daniel was dismayed by it. He knew right off what it meant. So he, And the fact that he was dismayed by it tells me that he had some... He kind of cared for this King Nebuchadnezzar. By now he's... He's been along with him through some trials. Chapter one, chapter two. His friends went through chapter three. Now, all this is happening to him, and he's, he sees that the tree is cut down. Daniel knew right off that meant him. So he felt bad for him. So their relationship went beyond just king and servant, king and servant there's more of a, I think there's something of a little bit of a friendship there that Daniel has with Nebuchadnezzar by now. After all, Nebuchadnezzar elevated Daniel to be the chief. He's kind of a favorite with the king. And I think Daniel likes him. So what Daniel does essentially is he repeats the first part of the dream back to him. Why did he do that? Maybe to soften, to remind him of the pleasant part of the dream. And to soften the, when it turns negative. So it's not so shocking to Nebuchadnezzar when he says, Oh, King, you're the tree. So Daniel's very wise in how he goes about this. Down in verse 24 then, 25, you, now now it gets dark, you shall be driven from among men. So he goes into the interpretation to tell him what's going to happen to him. You know, this is, this is a very strange affliction, actually. There's a word for this, I discovered, never heard this before. This is a delusional disorder that apparently, a very rare phenomenon, but it's happened to people where they identify with an animal. It's called lycanthropy. Lycanthropy. So apparently Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with a temporary bout of lycanthropy. He thought he was an ox. Now the, the good news there is good news. There is a bright side to this because Daniel tells him this is going to happen to you until you learn this lesson. And then you're going to be restored to sanity and to your throne. So it wasn't all dark. It did have a bright ending to it for Nebuchadnezzar. But he's got to pass this way first before he's... Restored to his kingdom and restored to a sound mind. And Daniel concludes it by exhorting Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Did you catch that? Verse 27 Therefore, O king, my, let my counsel be to you, be acceptable to you. Break off from your sins. He, he's calling on Nebuchadnezzar to repent. It's amazing, Nebuchadnezzar listened to this and took it without getting mad at him. That tells you the nature of their relationship. He could hear, it. Daniel was, was on a footing with the, with the king where he could say this directly to him. Not every prophet in the Bible could tell a king to repent and not have their life threatened. Think of what happened to Elijah and some of the others that were faithful in that. Nebuchadnezzar, he took it, he listened to Daniel told him to break off from his sins and to practice righteousness and your iniquities. And notice he, he's very specific here, by showing mercy to the oppressed. Uh, some think that that's probably referring to the prisoners of war that Nebuchadnezzar took in the conquering of his kingdom that were harshly treated by him. And so Daniel is singling out a specific area of his life as a king that he needed to turn from and how he was treating his prisoners of war in his kingdom. And why should Nebuchadnezzar repent? That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity almost to avert this terrible disaster that's coming upon him. If he were to turn to God and acknowledge him as the supreme ruler and repent of these sins, maybe this dream would not have to be fulfilled. But now what happened? Verse 28 to 33, the fulfillment of the dream. Notice this. All of this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was given 12 months. He was given a whole year to repent, turn from his sins, demonstrate by what he did that he was sorry for these things. He, Daniel's warning, whole year, what patience on the part of God. He wasn't afflicted with lycanthropy a week later. God gave him a whole, whole year to repent. And Nebuchadnezzar, he blew it off apparently. He's, uh, I like how he portrays himself. I mean, he, he now, in self-reflection, sees his utter pride. He's on his rooftop, overlooking his great city and just patting himself on the back, taking credit for the greatness of his kingdom. And while he's talking about this, another voice interrupts it from heaven. It reminded me of the story Jesus told. In Luke chapter 12, you remember the man who had a lot of goods laid up for the future? And he said, soul, take your ease. You've got all this provision for the future. Sit back, enjoy the good life, eat, drink, and be merry, and so on. And then God interrupts it all and says... You fool, tonight your soul's going to be required of you. And then who shall these things be that you have laid up for yourself? It's, it's kind of like that with Nebuchadnezzar, though God didn't kill him. God didn't call him into eternity. But the Lord interrupted that pride, that expression of self-promotion and taking credit for everything, not giving God any glory, Nebuchadnezzar is really pointing out his own sins here. Again, remember, this is his open letter to his kingdom, to his subjects, telling them his experience. He's acknowledging his pride publicly here. So he sees where he went wrong. And while these words were still in his mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, and so on. And then lycanthropy comes over him. So he suddenly now, his life is flipped upside down, because now he's going to think like an animal. He's going to think he's an ox. Until seven periods of time pass over him, and until he knows that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. So that's how it ends, and it, even with the detail of that he even started to look like an animal. He let his hair grow, his fingernails got long like a bird's claws. I mean, this guy, so the, that took some time to grow long fingernails to look like bird claws so it could have been longer than even 7 months so now look his restoration in verses 34 to the end after speaking in third person he did this he, he no verse 33 he was driven from among men And ate grass like an ox. That's Nebuchadnezzar talking about himself when he says he. Now, verse 34, he comes back to first person. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. Now, that's the first evidence that he's got his sanity back. Right there, because he lifts his eyes to heaven. Before, he was looking down at the ground eating grass. Thinking he's an animal. So his his mind has returned to him. How gracious God was. He could have left him like that. He could have left this great monarch in a state of utter confusion as to who he was, thinking he was, I can't think of anything worse than to think you're an animal and resign yourself to living like an animal after living in a palace. His mind returned to him. His sanity is restored. And the first thing he does, he looks to heaven and he begins to praise Him. Begins to praise God. What an amazing thing. I lifted my eyes to heaven. My re- reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High. Yeah. He's going to bless the Most High. That he got his mind back. That God had mercy on him. And he's worshiping, do you see that? He blessed the Most High. He praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That part was found in the opening of the chapter. But now in verse 35 he adds to his description of the sovereignty of the Most High. And this is probably the greatest description of the sovereignty of God you find in the Bible right here, and it came from King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at what he says about God. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now that's something for him to say, because he... He was the absolute monarch of Mesopotamia for 40-some years. He thought he was the greatest. But now he recognizes he's nothing along with everybody else. This This is the same idea that's found in Isaiah 40, when Isaiah goes off and describes God's greatness All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. In Isaiah 40, it says that the nations are as a drop in the bucket compared to Yahweh. It's the same idea. Though we, we need to see ourselves like that. Because that makes, it makes everything so much grander. We realize that we are a speck in God's creation and that he is mindful of, of us. Why would he who has created the heavens and the earth with the word of his power be mindful of us? Well, because we're made in his image. We're very special to him. And he's become our heavenly father. But when we look at it, just the difference between the great creator, the most high, and the inhabitants of the earth we are as nothing by comparison and Nebuchadnezzar saw it like that he adds to it and he and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth god's rule is over all domains of his kingdom. His kingdom stretches from heaven to earth. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. This is God's territory as the ruler of the universe. He does according to his will. Nebuchadnezzar thought it was all according to his will. Well, in a sense it was for him as an earthly king. He's a great monarch. He's the head of gold. His kingdom is the best example of God's rule over the universe because whatever Nebuchadnezzar said, that was it. That was the final word, was his will in the earth. But now Nebuchadnezzar realizes himself in comparison to the Most High that it's God's will that it ultimately rules in heaven and earth. But now this last part is... Really special when he adds, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Actually, in the original, in the Old Testament commentary by Kyle and Dielich, the German commentators, they said that this is, this is an expression that's referring to when a parent chastises or disciplines their children. They slap their hand. You have that in your mind about nobody slaps God's hand, as it were, and tells him, no, 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 can't touch that. In other words, God's will cannot be opposed or resisted is what it's saying to us. God's will is absolute in the earth. Nebuchadnezzar is his subject. Nebuchadnezzar does his will. He himself must submit with silence. This is what he's telling us. So Nebuchadnezzar has learned these lessons. They've been deeply embedded now in his mind and heart through this experience. He'll never forget it. He's never going to be the same after going through this. He's a changed man. And then it adds, verse 36, at the same time that my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and splendor returned to me, returned to his kingdom. To his, he hasn't lost anything. His, his greatness has grown, but he's now he sees it a little differently. He's not so proud about it. He recognizes it, but he recognizes who's done it for him. And that's the whole point. That's what God is teaching him. That he had his kingdom from Yahweh. That God gave him this rule and authority. That he just did not attain it on his own. God was so gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. He restored him to his kingdom. God is not jealous by a monarch's greatness. He's not jealous over the the great splendor and majesty of earthly kings. He's given us those examples of what he is. you just got to multiply that by infinity and that's who is over the universe. So he restores this man to his kingdom and greatness and power. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, verse the last verse, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. New expression, the king of heaven. He's acknowledging now who's the ultimate king. Who's the great king? The most high king. He, he, can't, he can't say enough about how wonderful Daniel's God is. For all his works are right and his ways are just. So now he's defending God. This is, this is called theodicy in theology. A defense of God. And there are times when we need to do that because people have a misunderstanding. Why did God annihilate the Canaanites? Well, read Charlie Trim's book on the genocide of the Canaanites and you'll get an understanding as to why that happened and have a defense of Yahweh's ways. No, this is a good sign. When you're defending what God does and he adds this and this is the the capstone (laughs) that those who... Walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He realizes pride and that he needed to be humbled. At the time, he didn't know he was like that. Because most of the time, there's no self-awareness. Until the mirror is turned on us and we begin to see these sins. And it was made known to Nebuchadnezzar that he was full of pride and self-promotion and vainglory. And God had mercy upon him to take the trouble, trouble, to go through all of this in order to show him his pride and to bring him down. Well, there's a lot to be learned from this, but I want to just focus on a couple of things. First of all, I believe. When you look at what Nebuchadnezzar says in chapter 2 about God, then chapter 3, and then chapter 4, and you traced those statements at the end of his supernatural encounters, three separate miracles, Daniel revealing the dream to him, the saving of the Hebrew uh, young men in the fiery furnace, and now this one... Nebuchadnezzar is increasing in his knowledge of Yahweh. And you know, we as Christians, we're told to grow in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10. Part of our growth as Christians is growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18, and growing in the knowledge of God himself. What do you think? I, I, I kind of know everything there is to know about God. I read Arthur Pink's book, The Attributes of God. I know already about him. No, you don't. No, you don't. Arthur Pink's book is about this thick. Get Stephen Charnock's book on the attributes, the existence and attributes of God, which is about 900 pages. I mean, this is a subject that goes on and on and on because we're dealing with an infinite being. And so there is much, much more to know about God than what we think we know because we happen to read maybe through the Bible one time. No, we're to be growing in the knowledge of God. And you know, I don't fault Nebuchadnezzar because I don't read here that and I renounce Bell. he is not God. No, I don't find that in the text. But this this man was growing in his knowledge of God, and I believe that he was regenerated. I believe something happened to him. Brother Jim said today in the Sunday school lesson that sometimes that period of time between the awakening of a person or when the seed is sown in their life and the time of when they come to faith or when they're actually regenerated can be a long period of time. That was true with some of us. Just like in natural childbirth, the period of gestation, when the baby is growing before it is born. For a human it's ten months. For a Elephant, it's 22 months or 18 months, depending on which elephant you're talking about. Longest period of gestation. Sometimes regeneration occurs like that. The seed is sown and birth comes later. So I think we're looking at a man who was brought to a true knowledge of God. That's my opinion. I think Nebuchadnezzar was saved. He worshiped. And it was sincere worship. You can't worship God if you don't have a knowledge of Him and a heart that's in agreement with that. And that only comes by regeneration. Now, secondly, about pride. That pride, human pride, that infects all of Adam's fallen race, all of us, all mankind is the number one thing on God's list that he, I'm going to say it like it is, he hates it. Where do you find that in the Bible? Well, that's Proverbs chapter 6. These seven things does the Lord hate. A proud look, first thing. Pride. It's such an ugly thing, pride. Pride. Because what do we have to be proud about? We're fallen creatures, rebels against God. There's everything to actually, when we have a true self-awareness and true self-knowledge, everything to humble us, to realize really who we are compared to the one who made us. But man is full of pride. And you know, the Internet, the World Wide Web, has been the greatest demonstration of human pride giving people the platform to express the ugliness of that pride like nothing ever in the history of the world. It's disgusting to see self-promotion. I, it bothers me no end when I see pastors promoting themselves, promoting their ministries. It's, to me, it's reprehensible. I don't think we should be doing that. Let God promote us, if he wants to. We should not pat ourselves on the back and and promote ourselves. Yet that's being done. Rather, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And this is where we need to be as Christians. But I need an example for that. What do you mean, Paul? How do I think of others and count others as more important than myself? Well, Paul knows exactly what example to produce. Because he goes in to explain the greatest example of humility that ever was. And that's the Son of God when he, in Paul's words, emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his Godhead. He continued to be God. But he emptied himself by taking. And that's what he says. He emptied himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant. He was in the form of God, but he did not think... That his mindset was that he was not going to cling to that at any cost. He was willing to relinquish it. His form of God. That's speaking about... His environment of deity, the environment of God, that the Son was willing to lay that aside temporarily, and He didn't give it up. He didn't give it up forever, but He hid it temporarily by becoming a man, and He veiled it for those years that He was on the earth. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing truth. The incarnation, we never get over it, never figure it out, never fully understand. The kenosis, as it's called in theology, God becoming flesh, God taking human form and becoming one of us. It's the most amazing thing of all history. When God became one of us, the infinite God became an infant. Can't ever forget it. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.